how do you feel about fireworks? Anybody like, yeah, fireworks are objectively cool, aren't they? They're objectively great. I mean, first of all, they, they explode, which means that they're already fascinating, especially maybe to boys uh, and certainly to, to men as well. We like things that blow up. I don't know if it's the same for the ladies, but uh, we feel that way. They, in the dark, they're spectacular, aren't they? I mean, I don't know if you've been to some really great fireworks shows where the colors are blooming in the night sky. My favorite part of the fireworks, though, is, is the sound, is the big booms. I love the big booms. I don't even know why I love the big booms. I just know that I do love them. But I'll confess that I have a bit of a mixed feeling about fireworks. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? You are in your house, and you just want to go to sleep, right? And it's New Year's Eve, and some bozo down the street is setting off fireworks. And they're, they're illegal in California. I mean, all these, these grumpy thoughts come to my mind, like, ah, uh, you know, those are illegal. They're breaking the law. Like, they're going to burn the state down, which sadly might actually happen. They are, are disturbing my sleep. They're dangerous. I think of all these reasons that I, I hate fireworks, even though they are objectively cool. They are objectively great. I like them in the right context, right? Because because fireworks actually celebrate something. Fireworks themselves aren't the celebration, but rather there's something else. When do we set off fireworks? Fourth of July, right? The rockets, red glare, the bombs bursting in air. It's, It's to celebrate our nation's independence. We don't set off fireworks just any time of the year. We set it off when there is cause to celebrate. We set them off New Year's Eve, right? There's a new year. We're excited. You know, it's, it's a, a fresh start. And we set off the fireworks. We think, this is great. This is wonderful. You go to the baseball games, right? I remember when I was growing up and I'd go to see the Seattle Mariners play. And the few times they did something good, uh, they would set off fireworks, right? They'd, someone would hit a home run. There were the fireworks. They'd win the game like once in blue moon. And there were the fireworks. It was great. They were fun. Fireworks are objectively cool, but they're meant to communicate something about what's happening in the world and what's happening in our lives. We don't just do them in isolation. We don't just set off fireworks for no reason at all most of the time. Sometimes we do, but most of the time we connect them with a celebration. You don't pull out the champagne just for any old reason at all. You pull it out to celebrate something. There's certain things in life that point beyond themselves to a greater reality. And you know what? I think that the miracles that we read about, uh, that Jesus performed and his disciples performed, they're a lot like fireworks. Here's the reason why. First of all, fireworks actually celebrate something that is true. Miracles actually celebrate something that is true. They tell us something about the people who do them, don't they? Let me ask you, if somebody, if you met somebody and they parted the sea in front of you, would you just like wander on like nothing had happened? Do you think you might want to know something about that person who did that amazing thing? If uh, someone was 
sick and you heard about someone who could do miracles, you know, whether or not you believe in miracles, if you heard about someone who could do them and everyone is saying, these are really happening, it's really true, and your friends started telling you, I, it's not just a story, I was there, I saw it happen, this person, you know, they can heal people no matter what their problem is. It, wouldn't, you, wouldn't you want to go and, and meet them and get to know them and understand something about what's happening? See, miracles actually tell us they're like a big firework saying, look over here. Look at this person. There is something here that you need to see. The miracles actually tell us something about who Jesus and his disciples are. And notice that when Jesus' disciples perform the miracle here in the, in the book of Acts, when Peter goes to Aeneas, and uh, he, he comes to him, and Aeneas is paralyzed, and he says what to Aeneas? He says, Aeneas, Jesus heals you. Peter's very clear. This isn't about me and my greatness. This is about the greatness of somebody else and his power to change and transform your life. Miracles point to the deeper reality of who Jesus is. Now, if this is true, and I think it is, how is it that people saw the miracles and still didn't believe in Jesus? Remember this? How is it that when works of power happen through God's people today, when we see them and we witness them, and I don't know about you, but I have witnessed miracles in my own life. I've been part of them in a number of different ways. Some of them small, some of them big. Just give you a, a quick story. This it seems like a small one, but certainly wasn't to the person who experienced it. This week, I was talking to somebody who was really hurting, and we started praying some scripture about you know, what does God do for us when we're hurting? And how does he take care of us? And we came to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And we, uh, we, we prayed it over these circumstances. I'll, I'll give you the exact verse right here. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with that same comfort we got from God. It's a wonderful passage because it tells us, first of all, that God is present to help us in our hurt, but then God makes our hurt purposeful. That comfort that we got, we can now also extend to others. But for the person who is hurting, we just we prayed through this. God, give that comfort that's right here. And while we started to pray, this person was weeping. And when we finished, they were not anymore. And they said, I felt that comfort. Something is different in my heart right now. It's not the big obvious mortar in the sky, is it? But it doesn't mean it wasn't actually God working in that moment. How is it that we experience those things and we still don't believe in and we still don't trust Jesus? Well, we go to John chapter 6 for this one. And here, Jesus, this is a familiar story. Jesus feeds the 5,000. 
right? There are all these people, and it's getting late, and the disciples say, send them home, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. The disciples are like, are you crazy? We can't feed all these people. Jesus says, what do you have? He says, well, we've got five loaves of bread and two fish. And he goes, that's plenty. He gives thanks, and he breaks them, uh, breaks up the bread and the fish, and they start handing it out. And not only do they feed the entire crowd, by the way, it says there were about 5,000 men. So it's not even including the women and children who were there. We have no idea how many people were actually there, but we know it's more than 5,000, five loaves of bread, two fish. Not only did they all eat until they were satisfied, but they had leftovers at the end. Jesus, I, I am like Jesus. I always make too much food, just like him. It's maybe the least important way I can be like Jesus, but I'll take it. And what happens? Everyone's like, wow, that was amazing. And then Jesus, they start to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus has just performed an amazing miracle. Everyone thinks as well of Jesus as they've ever thought before. Jesus naturally concludes, it's time for me to get out of here. I'm getting too popular. And then uh, his disciples, who are probably disappointed by this, they start going across the lake. Another gospel tells us that uh, Jesus told them to go across the lake and he'd meet them. And then uh, a storm kicks up. Jesus meets them walking on the water, just in case the disciples are confused. Jesus is like, well, I don't want to become king. So he was like, who, who are we following anyway? Jesus walks on the water to them. They go, it must be okay. Jesus can walk on water. Everything's fine. He calms the storm. They get to the other side of the lake. And the people the next morning that Jesus had fed, they wake up. And what do they do? They're hungry. And they say, where's Jesus? And so they walk all the way around the lake to find Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did you, we, you went that way. The disciples went across the lake this way. And then we, I feel like you should be here after we got here. How did you get here? Jesus, of course, doesn't answer them. Instead, he points to a problem in their hearts. Jesus says, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. You are hungry again, and you want me to feed you. See, they saw the miracle, but they didn't see the person behind the miracle. They didn't see the Son of God feeding them. They just saw the bread. That's how the miracles can reveal who Jesus is, and yet at the same time, nobody gets it. Because we love full stomachs. Because we love being healthy. And we can love those things a lot more than we can want to know Jesus. Sometimes people say, you know, if God was really out there, he'd just, he'd make it obvious. He'd, he'd open the skies up. Because we all, for some reason, think that God lives in the sky. He'd open the skies up. And he would tell us, like, look, here I am. It's me. And the Bible is telling us, yeah, that's not the way our hearts work. 
As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure Jesus would say something to us. You know, if we ever appear before Jesus, take the people in the first century. Take those Pharisees who wanted Jesus dead. And remember, they they successfully had him executed by the Romans. And then, uh, uh, then they got heard the rumors that Jesus had risen from the dead. And what did they do? They said, well, just tell this story. The disciples came and stole the body. They're, they want what they want so much that they're willing to bend reality. They're willing to twist reality to make it sound the way it will. And someday, I guarantee, those folks who knew Jesus rose from the dead will appear before God and they'll say, but how are we supposed to know? And Jesus will say, dude, because he talks like a 21st century Californian. (laughs) I rose from the dead. What more do you want? And there, finally, all of our excuses will be stripped away. I think that has a lot to do with what hell actually is. It's finally understanding and being unable to run away from the things that we ran away from all of our lives long. It's not true that what we really need is for God just to split the skies open so he can see him because we would find reasons to not believe in him anyway. It was a mass hallucination. Everyone thought, did you know that that's the way a number of scholars have actually explained the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus? There's, uh, the Bible says, like in 1 Corinthians 15, that 500 people saw the risen Jesus all at once. And a number of scholars have suggested, well, it's mass hysteria. And uh, the most usual response you see to that is there are no documented cases of that sort of mass hysteria. That just doesn't happen. See, the truth isn't always enough to change our broken parts. But that doesn't mean the miracles aren't really pointing to Jesus. See, for when we actually turn to Jesus, here's the great thing. When we actually turn to Jesus, that fight in our heart starts to get killed. That fight to say, you know, I don't really want to see God for the way he is because of how that will mean I have to change my life because of how that'll transform the way I think about myself. When we turn to Jesus, he starts to kill that way of thinking and that way of feeling in us. And now we're finally free to see Jesus clearly in the miracles. That's not all the miracles do, though. They don't just point to who Jesus is, although they certainly do that. The miracles often, or the miracles also tell us what a redeemed world looks like. See, Jesus, when he first started sharing the the message that was on his heart, when he first started teaching the crowds and his ministry began, he said to everyone, this is the theme of his teaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent means turn around, live a different way. Because, why? Because God's kingdom is breaking in to this world. See, when we talk about a a new world, when we say, (laughs) 
excuse me, we talk about, well, I don't want to be part of this world, I want to be part of the next world. We're not so much talking about things that happen in time, like an entirely different uh, sort of of world, like it's not made out of this this matter that I'm standing on, that's that's a, a, a new earth because the old earth has just been thrown away like it didn't really matter. You know, God doesn't throw stuff away. Can we, can we say that to each other right now? Because when God said, when he made the world, do you remember what he said at, at, every, at the end of every day? He said, it is good, right? At the sixth day when he made human beings, he said, it is very good. And did he ever change his mind about that? No. That's why he wants to rescue it. I made it good. I'm going to make it good again. So when we talk about the, the world that's coming, it's more of a renewal and a recreation of what we already have here. And what will the renewal and the recreation be like? We've touched on this a few times in the last few weeks. It will be a place where societies are transformed. And the systemic realities that make life more difficult for some and easier for others will be transformed so that now they're, they're the same. There is no injustice left in the systems of our society, whatever they may be. Which, by the way, is also why we should be very concerned about the injustices that exist in our world of every sort. And we shouldn't be afraid to talk about them or to confront them. There is no one better prepared than Christians to say that our society doesn't work right because we are the ones who are looking for a new society. Why would we stand here and be saying we should just pretend like everything is fair for everyone all the time? It's just not. When you were growing up, did you have brothers and sisters? Were you always treated fairly by your parents? No. I don't always treat my kids fairly, no matter how hard I try. The world is not a fair place. And when people start talking about that unfairness that's there, you know why we're tempted to cover our ears? It's because we benefit sometimes from some of those unfairnesses. The clothes that we're all wearing, I think I heard this week that something like 80, 70 to 80% of the clothing that we buy in America comes from the developing, not just from the developing world, but from one country in particular in the developing world. I don't recall what that is. This is not a surprise to anybody, right? We all know that our clothing is made there. How much are the people in those places paid? We are benefiting from going to countries where people get paid less so that we can have cheaper clothing. Now, that's an unfairness, even an injustice in some sense that exists in the world. And we don't want to talk about it specifically because it threatens our comfort and our stability. But folks, we are never supposed to find our comfort and stability in this life. You remember what we said from 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Was it God will comfort you by giving you lots of cool stuff? Or was it God will comfort you with a divine comfort that comes from outside of this world? Remember Philippians chapter, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, make your requests known to God. And then what happens? And then the peace of God that transcends understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. 
We're not looking for this world to answer all of our needs and to make us comfortable. Or at least in theory, we're not. Sometimes in reality, we are. Because we're still shaken off all that brokenness that Jesus is washing away from us. We're not there yet, but he's taking us there. We, more than anyone else, are best equipped to confront the injustice that dwells anywhere in our world. And when we find fear, when we find resistance, the first question we should ask is, why? Why? Now, let me tell you, the world is not a simple place. If it was, we would fix it. I don't know. You know, as as I call out the clothes that we wear, I don't know how to solve that particular problem. Because the standard of living has actually risen in a number of those places, as a result of making clothes for cheap for Americans. But I do know that doesn't make it completely fair and just. Lord Jesus, come back soon. Save me from having to fix all of this on my own. Let's not pretend the solutions are simple. But let's, yes, recognize where the solutions come from. See, the miracles reveal the kind of world that God is busy creating and that is already starting to appear in this one. See, every time Jesus went out and he healed somebody, every time the disciples and the apostles went out and healed somebody, do you know, part of what they were saying is, this is what God's kingdom looks like. No more sickness, no more disease, no more physical brokenness, no more societal brokenness. Because that's what happens in the church as well. Remember, there's these these supernatural friendships and relationships that are built where people are taking care of each other better than they've ever done it before. That's what God does in the miracles. He says, this, this is what the world I am making looks like. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Great Divorce, which I've been quoting extensively recently, talks about an artist who goes to heaven. And when he's there, he says, Can I, I can't wait to paint all of this. It's so beautiful. And somebody says, yeah, you can't paint up here. And the artist, of course, is crushed. What do you mean I can't paint? That's, that's what I am. That's my life's work. You know, uh, showing people all this stuff. And the, uh, the person that he's dialoguing with says, well, that's what you were about at first. The reason your paintings were so wonderful at first is because sometimes you saw glimpses of the world that God is creating. Sometimes you saw glimpses of heaven and the world around you. And you put paint to canvas And when you did that, other people could see those glimpses as well. But the reason you can't paint here, at least not yet, is because what will you show people that they can't see for themselves? It's right there. You don't have to reveal the hidden thing because it's not hidden any longer. I love that picture. The miracles are these snapshots of the world that God is building and that he's longing to build, and that one day we'll fully be here. And when we find those things, and when we find those places, oh, we stare at them with glory and hope and longing and love. And we start to imagine, what if the rest of the world was like that too? 
And the Holy Spirit moves in our hearts and says, that's exactly what I'm here to help you for. To be agents of God's kingdom. To be the, the invasion force from heaven that starts to bring heaven down to earth. Now listen, you and I, we can't build God's kingdom on our own. And even with the Holy Spirit, we'll only go so far because God's kingdom will never be complete until Jesus sits on the throne and is acknowledged everywhere and by everyone as the one true King and Lord because it's his rules and his laws that are just. This is why no election ever has the ability to save us. Because unless Jesus is on the ballot, we're getting a poor imitation at best. And that's a compliment. Jesus is the king that we need. The end of, because uh, uh, we need a superhero reference here. At the end of the Batman movie, The Dark Knight, uh, someone, does, someone who is Gotham's hope does something terrible. And uh, Batman says, why don't you pin that on me instead? I'll take the blame for that because no one, you know, I'm Batman. Like everyone thinks that I'm kind of out there and crazy and you're know, not the guy to, to lead the restored Gotham. I can help clean it up, but I, you know, once the criminals are gone, I got nothing else to do. I'm not the beacon of hope. This guy can be the beacon of hope. And I think that's sort of, we're kind of like Batman. We can help clean up the things that are happening here. But we ourselves are not that beacon of hope. We can only point to it. That's why Peter says, Jesus Christ heals you. I am Batman. <laughs> but he, he is the good king. And it's by his power that we are healed. In the context of Acts uh, chapter 9 here, if I can refresh your memory, uh, the church has just gone through a terrible persecution. Saul uh, has approved of the killing of Stephen, one of, the, one of the shining stars in the church, one of the best men in the church. Uh, Saul has dragged people out of their houses and thrown them in prison. He's had them beaten, and some, perhaps like Stephen, killed as well. The church lived in fear, and people ran away from their homes to try and find a place far away from Saul. And then, of course, God, Jesus, appears to Saul on the road, and Saul becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. And as a result, the very first verse we read in the scripture reading, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And in this context, we get the miracle stories. And this is the unique contribution of the book, I think, of this passage to understanding what miracles do. See, miracles point to the truth about who Jesus is. Miracles reveal the kind of world that God wants to build and is already building. And miracles comfort the hurting and especially God's church. Take a look, not just at Aeneas here, but let's go on to Dorcas. That's Dorcas, I believe, is the Greek name for the woman called Tabitha. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. In Greek, her name is Dorcas. There you go. Uh, she was always doing good and helping the poor. 
About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. And Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Please come at once. And Peter went with them. When he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. And all the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and outer clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. See, the picture here is that Dorcas was a pillar of the church in Joppa. By the way, Joppa, we think, didn't have at any point a strong church. Uh, We think that because we know that until the 5th century BC, uh, Joppa didn't have its own bishop, which meant there probably wasn't a large Christian presence uh, in the city until at least the 5th century. And Dorcas, it appears, was holding that church together by her example, by her trust in Jesus Christ, and by the work of the Holy Spirit through her. And the church, when they lost, Dorcas said, we don't know what we're going to do. Just how can we be God's people without Dorcas? And so Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called for the believers. Listen to this. Then he called for the believers, and especially the widows. Seems like that was the big ministry that Dorcas has, doesn't it? They all, remember when Peter came in, they all showed them, these are the the clothes we're wearing. Dorcas made those for us. This is, in a sense, purely about comforting the brokenhearted. You know, I have to be honest with you. I wrestle with God over miracles today. God, why don't we see more of them? You're out there. I know it. God, uh, do you want me to do any? Because I kind of don't want to, because what if I show up and try and nothing happens? I'm afraid. God, I would love to see the miracles, but I recognize that the primary purpose of those is to transform the hearts and minds and lives of the people who encounter them. And I've had enough transformation for today. You ever hear somebody pray? Cal tells me this all the time. I don't know why. But he says, never pray for patience because God will give it to you. Now, on the one hand, we all want to be patient, don't we? But what Kyle is really saying is God will give you situations that will make you exercise patience until you have it. And none of us want that. Kyle's not the only one who's ever said that, by the way. Just I don't want you thinking too much of him. He's not here, so I can give him a hard time. I hope you're watching in Florida, Cal. Um, I wrestle with this. What do we make of it? But I'm helped in knowing a few things. First of all, just to summarize everything that we've said so far, when should we look for miracles? Well, when they will reveal the person of Jesus Christ to people who need to meet him and perhaps are willing to meet him in that way. Because remember, the miracles weren't a guarantee that people would turn to Jesus. Sometimes people just wanted to be full. Secondly, we can expect to see miracles 
when we need to know what God's new world looks like. And really, that's where this whole comforting the church thing fits in. When we are hurting as a church, first of all, we're going to hurt. It'll happen. No one gets to avoid that. Dorcas may have been raised from the dead, but she died again. It wasn't permanent. That doesn't come until the end when Jesus comes back. We know that we will hurt in life and that God's goal is not to save us from all of the hurt, but sometimes to use that hurt to transform us and to make us people more like Jesus and better equipped to receive the kingdom. But I think we can expect and we can pray for. First of all, you can pray for miracles anytime. God's not going to get angry. Uh, but I think we are cooperating with what God wants to do when we pray for miracles, when we recognize that God, in order, you know, we are hurting and we really want to see you in your power in this moment change something about our circumstances because we can't picture what your new world will look like apart from that. Does that make sense? Need to see some nodding or shaking heads here. So otherwise, I'm just going to keep going. So, I think that's the place of miracles in the church. When we need, again, to see Jesus' identity established. This is who he is. When we need to be reminded of what God's new world will look like. And in the midst of our hurt, when the only solution is to see God's kingdom in a new and more powerful way come in our midst. That's where miracles are appropriate. That's why we don't just, that's why, frankly, I don't walk around to everyone I meet and say, what are, you know, how are you hurting today? Let me see if I can get you a miracle. It's about more than that. Not less, 